we are in our study of Revelation. We're turning to one of the hardest of the seven letters to read. It's the fifth letter in the order of letters. Um, it's one of two that Jesus doesn't list any commendation for. But in the flow of the, of the letters, I pointed out last week that there's kind of a chiastic structure working towards the middle. And the central three letters together have a, a progression, one starting Pergamum, starting cultural compromise, that then moves to the, to the next letter in Thyatira. So I, let me just say this before we really dig in. <clears throat> last week, I've heard this, this city named so many different ways, and I decided this week I'm going to change it to what Google says is the right pronunciation. Thyatira. So I don't know if that's right. I've heard it Thyatira, Thyatira, Theatira, a bunch of different ways. And so anyway, we'll see how that works today. I don't know that that, it probably won't because I've said it the same way all my life, which is probably wrong, but it's okay. Anyway, keep, keep moving forward. So, so moving from Pergamum, which is a cultural compromise, co- compromise, dealing with the stumbling blocks of the external pressures of culture, the external expectation, the external temptations, moving towards cultural compromise. Within Thyatira, there is an internal uh, challenge, a false prophet from within that's beginning to seduce people and lead them astray. And they're tolerating her first message or her false message. And I actually left an open-ended question that we're actually going to deal with um, this week some more is really how far does tolerance go? What's the right extent of tolerance or, or where do we stop it? Because we see Jesus even tolerating for a time Jezebel. Now, they're called on the fact that they're tolerating Jezebel, but it's not so much even Jesus is giving her time to repent. If you go back and read the letter, even Jesus gives her time to repent. He tolerates her for a time, but her message in the church and her influence in the church is intolerable, right? So the false gospel that she's promoting, the false comforts of running in and participating in these worldly God-dishonoring things, the teaching of lies is intolerable within the church. But even Jesus is allowing her time to repent. But that tolerance has a limit in its scope in what is tolerable in and among God's people, but it also has a, a, a distance or a, a time at which it is limited. And we've seen it in every letter. We'll see it again today that that time is limited. So we go from cultural compromise to tolerating what's intolerable, Tolerating false teaching and, and false teachers within the people of God. And then today we move in this third letter, this third central letter, we move to a church that seemingly has lost its, it's lost its witness altogether, seemingly is indistinguishable from the world that they live in. Now I just want to, I want to say this because we're going to deal with heavy things today. I want you to hear me say this as your pastor... I think, of the letters that we've studied to this point, this is the one that, that we are least like. I think in every one of these letters, there are <clears throat> issues that we need to be paying attention to. But I think this, this church in Sardis, we are least comparable to as a local body. Now, if you step out and look at the broader church culture in Springfield, the broader church culture of America, I think there's probably plenty that could be said. But as a local congregation... I think this probably has the least comparable, is least comparable to us. That being said, it's still necessary that we hear this letter. We need to hear it as a warning because we're not beyond becoming like Sardis. They didn't start where they are, right? They didn't start in this place of, of 
looking so much like the city around them that they were indistinguishable. So we need to hear this warning. We need to pay attention to this letter. So let's jump in. Let's, let's, let's deal with it, right? So, so we've got the, the church in Pergamum. A faithful witness must, must be ready to die well, but must also endure to live well. So these people must be ready to live in such a way that they are distinguishable from the culture around them. They must avoid the stumbling blocks of cultural compromise. The church in Thyatira, tolerating the intolerable, is neither faithful nor loving. It's not, it's not good to tolerate the lies of false teachers, the false gospels that are presented, both the religious type and the irreligious type. There's two types of false gospels that are dealt with across the New Testament. We must reject the lies of false teachers. And now, as we think on those things and ready to move forward, let's read Revelation 3, 1 through 6, as Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Help us pay attention to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to be warned that this would never be able to be said in truth about this church, but that by your warning we would be guarded, that we would remain committed, that we would stay awake, that we would continue to bear witness and be faithful witnesses until the day you return. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here it is, the, the point, I think, that the summation of this letter, especially for us as we sit in this place where I don't think we're like Sardis, but must be guarded against becoming the church in Sardis. We must stay awake. We must, re- we, we must remain awake. We must stay awake. Now is the time to hear heed and herald Jesus' mercy-filled call to vigilant repentance and patient endurance. Now is the time. Not tomorrow, not I'll get around to it. I was actually joking a minute ago. I wasn't joking. Actually, I was saying I had time for something, and then a joke was being told about me saying, oh, I've got time, and then actually being late. And Anyway, we don't know. Now's the time right? Don't put it off. Don't think I won't be late. I won't miss it. I won't, I, it won't happen without me. Now is the time to hear, heed, and herald Jesus's mercy-filled call to vigilant repentance and patient endurance. In Pergamum, the church had compromised. They were beginning to compromise. They were tending towards cultural compromise. They were beginning to participate in, in pagan festivals and, and eating food, uh, uh, sacrificed to idols, because they had been so influenced by the culture around them. The outside world had an effect. 
The outside influence was leading people astray. In Thyatira, it wasn't just an outside influence. They had welcomed someone within the church and they had begun to tolerate that false gospel. I just think of all the, all the false gospels that get told to church members across podcasts and across YouTube channels and across, if you'll just do this, if we can just achieve this, if we can just make sure we don't lose this ground, and then those things never get followed up by preaching, professing, trusting Jesus Christ. But rather, the right candidate in office. The right relationships in your life. The right approach to sinful people. Now all of these things are important. All of these things have weight. They all matter. But they send us on false missions to secure uh, America or to, or to guard our little family or to ignore the world around us or actually begin to act like the world around us. Right now, this morning, there's a, what's called a church meeting in Springfield that will not honor Christ, will not profess that Christ is the only way and says that everybody's going to make it. They act so much like the world we live in, it's almost indistinguishable. It's called the venues. It's led by a man who was raised in the church, my mother's pastor at one point. It, it is this, it is, he is the son of my mother's pastor when she was younger. And in many ways, he has abandoned the faith in every way. I would suggest he's abandoned the faith. They don't stand for anything anymore. Except tolerating what's intolerable. It's really sad. He wasn't always there, and he didn't always lead a church there, but he was removed from his last pastorate because he began to, to deny the veracity, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of Jesus's of God's word, of the scripture. much like this church in Sardis. They weren't always the way that they are. And much like the church, the city wasn't always like it was as, they were, as, as Jesus was writing this letter. They once had been known for this, well, they had been known for a glorious past. They were the capital of the region. They were the center of life in, in that region. They were, they were claims that were made that they were the first city that ever dyed wool. And that made them famous. They were the first city by, by tradition that, that minted gold and silver coins. But they were a city known for their complacency and who didn't pursue and continue to endure or defend themselves or their positions in the area. Twice they'd been defeated because they were a city, they were really a, a, an upper city and a lower city. And, and the upper city, when they would come under attack, the upper city would become the place where people would gather and they believed that they were safe because one side of their city was, was basically the side of a sheer cliff and, they, a cliff, and they thought, well, there's only one way up. Twice in their history, they were defeated because people attacked them by coming up the cliff that was unassailable, that they then defeated the city because they were complacent. And they lost their position. They, they, they ceased to be the city that was prominent and powerful and that was making a difference in their area. 
Then in 17 AD, a, 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 an earthquake destroys the city, and though they would rebuild, though they were recognized by the Roman emperor and given, given, a, given relief in paying taxes, they would never regain the prominence that they once had. Their glory days were behind them, just like so many so-called Christians today, just like this church in Sardis, their glory days were behind them. See, Sardis isn't struggling, struggling with the stumbling blocks of culture anymore. It's not that the stumbling blocks aren't there. They're just not struggling against them. They've tripped on them. They fell flat on their face because of them. And they've not tried to get back up and do anything about it. They're not struggling with tolerating the false gospels of false prophets because they're just listening. The tolerance has become affirmation, right? Remember, we're not, we're not defining tolerance as something that condones or affirms or approves. Tolerance is dealing with that thing that's offensive. It's dealing with that thing that we know is wrong, but somehow we still have to be around that person to ensure that they hear a gospel call to repentance. We still have to make inroads into that place. They're not tolerating. They're flat out affirming. They flat out bought in. They're no longer struggling with tolerance and stumbling blocks. They aren't, even, they aren't even what they say they are. They're Christians in name only. They're, they're a church in name only. And though I would suggest that that's not true of our, our congregation, our local congregation... If we aren't careful, if we don't remain vigilant, if we don't stay awake, we can become just like them. Sad truth is we live in a culture in which Christians are no longer proclaiming a gospel that actually offends people and that demands a savior that's died on a cross for their sin. We're quick to run to the grace of God, but deny the reason we need his grace to begin with. I, I, I did a, a little recording. I was reminded of this a few months back based on a sermon that was being preached. And I don't even remember what it was in the sermon that made me think about it. But it's, we're, we're so quick to run and, and offer salvation based on faith with ever, with, without ever mentioning the need for repentance. Do you recognize that as Jesus is talking to these people, he's not even mentioned faith once? Now, it's implicit in every call is, is the necessity of faith, but he is calling people to repentance. All the way back, you go to the book of Acts, and, and that's Peter's call. They, they, they recognize they had killed their Messiah. Jesus says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 2, right, right around verse 36, that they are cut to the heart. They recognize the sin of their life. Well, we have destroyed this. We have killed our Messiah. What do we do? He doesn't say believe, although it's implicit. He says repent. I don't think we can faithfully preach the gospel that we're to believe in, that we're to exercise faith and put our faith in Christ in until we've also recognized and pointed people to the fact that they must repent of their sin and turn to, to Jesus and trust in him. 
We live in a, a culture in which successful church is determined by its rate of growth and breadth instead of depth. Where we use metrics like baptisms, butts, and buildings and budgets to, to measure everything. And if all of these are the right size, then you can consider yourself successful. We live in a culture in which churches depend more on the programs they offer than the power of God and his spirit to bring about change. We live in a culture in which even those that have been faithful at one point are being lulled to sleep because they see good people all around them. Like, what do we got left to do? You know, we live in a city in which we can sit down in a restaurant and be surrounded by people who open their Bibles, who sit and have Bible conversations. So easy just to get lulled to sleep. But you know what's shocking about our city that's got, I, th I think there's something like, uh, I know there's over 500 churches in the Green County, uh, in Green County. I know that there's over 300 churches and that's loose, right? Like that, somebody would count venues in that, in that list or they would count the Islamic temple or they would count the, the um, Buddhist group that's here. They would count those. There's over 300 groups that are classified as churches inside our city limits. You go to Panera on a Monday morning, you're going to see people opening their Bibles doing... You sit down in a coffee shop and you're going to see people sitting down and doing Bible study. You're, just, you're going to hear people having religious conversation. But in that same city, we, we lead the state and the nation. In southwest Missouri, we lead the state and the nation in meth overdoses. Think about that. Now, our neighborhood association um, came. They, they have their meetings here every, every, like every other month or something like that. Two meetings ago, they had, uh, uh, I think it was a, it's a representative from Cox Hospital. I don't remember what their role was, but this representative comes and is handing out Narcan doses that he then encourages all of the people at the meeting, go get more, tell people that they're available at Cox Hospital. Go get these Narcan doses because that's going to potentially save somebody you know from an overdose. Have them on hand. They're done. They're made, I guess, so that you can dose the person yourself if you see them in an overdose to stop the overdose. Just a couple of years ago, last year, in fact, our, our own health department puts out this report that this is true of our area, that, that we lead the nation in drug-related overdose. We regularly make lists, top 10 lists of being the most dangerous city to live in in America. Last year, in 2022, we, made, we were the top four most dangerous college town. I don't know that it feels like that living here, but by the numbers, by the statistics, now you drill down into those statistics and you find out that a lot of, that a lot of those are not violent crimes. You're not more likely than all but four other cities in America to have a violent crime committed against you. But when you drill down into those statistics, it's, it's personal property theft. It's like getting your car stolen and, and being the being the object of some criminal action, even though it's nonviolent. But I can guarantee you, I've known it twice of people have, and to, to people in our church that had their car stolen. That doesn't feel so nonviolent when you're the one that's experienced it. Right? Like you feel the offense deeply, even though they've not committed it against your body. I watched it happen twice. People in our, in our church 
We live in a city that seems to be so religious. But we live in a city in which Christians are easily lulled to sleep like there's nothing left to do because look, there's a church on every corner and look at the size of the churches. I mean, the church is so successful here. But as the churches have gotten larger and more disconnected and more withdrawn from the culture, the culture is rotting. I think there's a flip side of this too. Because as the church withdraws and sits in judgment on the city, we no longer go to the people who dwell in the city. We're no longer extending the grace and the mercy-filled call to repentance to a people who need to hear this repentance. Instead, we're sitting around like we're, oh, well, we got it all together. Me and my four are good. We just gather in our huddle, holy huddles and we stand over the people in our culture and think, mm, glad I'm not like them. Brother and sister, I don't believe that this church in Sardis is comparable or representative of where our church is at today. But can we hear the warning? Should we hear the warning? Yeah, we should. Because we live in a place that would be so easy to just be lulled to sleep, to feel complacent. Because look, it's so religious here. It's so safe here. The work is done here. They're reached with the gospel here. There's so much opportunity for people to know Christ here. And yet, we are becoming more and more irreligious, more and more suffocated by horrific and sinful things all the time. We must stay awake now, now, not tomorrow. Now, not next week, not when we get things together, not when we've got it figured out, not when my children are of a certain age, not when I don't have to feel the cost, not when it's going to be easy. Now, now is the time to hear, heed, and herald Jesus' mercy-filled call to vigilant repentance and patient endurance. And I'd love to go back and add to that as his faithful witnesses. This is what he's called every church to, to be faithful witnesses, to be representative of his faithful witness, to be a people who make his witness known. We aren't there, but we must stay awake or we could be there, just like Sardis. And we see this. We see, that. we see where Sardis was at. We see where they've gone to as we look at his commendations, his complaints against the church, his call to the church. And his commitment to the church, we see it. We see where they were. We see what happened to them. So let's look at it. Jesus' commendations for the church in Sardis. You know, by this point, as we read these letters, by this point, a clear pattern has developed. Like Jesus is going to say, I know this about your church. And he's going to say something good. Right? I know he said it to Ephesus. I know your works. He said it to Smyrna. I know where you live. He's, he, or he said it to Pergamum. I know where you live. He said it to Ephesus or, or to, to Smyrna. Um, I know your tribulation. I know the circumstances you live in. The Thyatira, he says to them, I know your works. And then he has something good to say to every one of them. And so you, you would be expecting to hear, oh, here's this good thing coming. I know this thing. 
But then what he doesn't say speaks just as loudly as what he does. He doesn't say, I know your works, you've got this great doctrine. I, 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 know, the, the, I know your works, you're, you're enduring persecution. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say anything about a people who have lived such a bold, faithful witness that they are paying the price for it. He doesn't say anything about, about false teachers plaguing them or cultural compromise being a stumbling block to them. He doesn't say anything good about them. This is a church filled mostly with nominal Christians. What commendations does he have for the church in Sardis? There are none. Instead of commendations, following Jesus, I know your works. Instead of commendations, Jesus moves immediately to his complaints. What are those complaints? What are Jesus' complaints against the church in Sardis? You're mostly dead. Now he says, I know your reputation is, is of being alive, but you're dead. But I say mostly dead, not because, not because Jesus doesn't make clear you're dead. It, it just, but as he walks through it, we begin to see, wait a minute, there's something else happening, that there's a hyperbole that's being expressed and that you are dead because he's going to call them to strengthen what remains. There's something happening. It's like that, it's like that fire that looks like it's out, and then you go and breathe on it, and there's some embers. So it happens in Africa. It's actually a really cool thing. What they, what they do is it cools down. And I know it, if you've been there, you're like, cools down. That's really relative, right, for them. It's cool at, at about 70 degrees, and they're all bundling up in these parkas. It's the funniest thing in the world to see. But they got the, what they do is they cut trees down, and they leave the trees whole, like these big branches and big trunks that they'll leave whole, and they'll put them together. They'll put three or four of them together in a fire, and they'll, they'll light the fire from underneath it. And as the fire starts to wane, they actually just continue to push the, the trees in. So instead of cutting a bunch of wood, they cut it down once, they lay it in the fire, and they just kind of feed the fire as it goes in. Well, the next morning, what they do to put the fire out at night is they pull the trees apart from one another, and the embers just kind of start to, to dwindle. And then the next morning... There's no smoke coming up from that fire. There's nothing happening. It doesn't appear. It appears that it's dead. But they push those trees back in, and they get underneath of it, and they begin to blow. And embers underneath the ash begin to burn hot. And then those tree trunks or tree limbs or branches begin to burn. There's something still in Sardis. Strengthen what remains. Fan that ember into flame. So we, we know they're not completely dead. They're like the guy in The Princess Bride who's just mostly dead. I know you're all waiting for it. That's why I chose those two words. He's just mostly dead. There's some that, that are there that haven't soiled themselves yet. They're just mostly dead. I know your works, he says, but they're incomplete before my God. They are not complete. They are, they are not finished. They're only halfway done. There's a form of religion among you, but it isn't true. There are these so-called good works that don't really accomplish anything that's eternally good. It's like the social gospel that says, hey, we're going to go out and we're going we're to feed the hungry and we're going we're to support the poor and we're going to give them a hand up in society and then you never tell them about Jesus. But if we just fix poverty, 
That'll be enough. Well, what have you done? If you get a homeless man a job, but never point him to the Christ that saves, you've made his life easier while he lives here on earth, but you've potentially made it easier for him to go to hell. Well, what about the way we oftentimes raise our children? And this happens in all kinds of Christian circles. I want to make sure I want to prepare them to live in this world. I want to prepare them to go out into the world and make a way. And we're so concerned about their education. We're so concerned about the degrees they get. that We're so concerned about giving them a skill that they can work in the world. Absolutely a wonderful thing to do. Please go do it. But we spend more time chasing after those things. Participating in the sports that they'll not compete in all their life. Participating in the in the extracurriculars, denying their opportunities to be with and among God's people who will regularly tell them, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Set aside the weights and the, the, the chains that bind you so that you can run this race. I don't know that, I, I think this is true as I'm about to say this. I think this is true. You might, you might be able to find some, some reference somewhere, uh, probably in the Proverbs. Um, so I want to I say it with some caution. But there is, as far as I know, in, in the Bible, way less emphasis on preparing your children to live in this world, but over and over a resounding emphasis on raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they will know how to live in the world to come. Don't misunderstand. Don't, 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 don't hear me saying I'm against something that I'm actually for. Raise your children well. But don't dismiss the, don't dismiss the greater thing. That's an incomplete work. You're only getting them halfway. You're only preparing them to live part of the life that they will live. And it's actually an infinitesimal small part of the eternity in which they will live. This life is a wisp of smoke. I think churches today are more known for their political positions than for the Christ that saves them. Man, go involve yourself, act and and participate in the political system so that we can see our government make good laws as much as we have influence over that. Vote to the glory of God. Do things that honor him as we participate in the systems and structures of our country. But if we're more known for the candidate we stump for, than the Christ that was crucified for us. That's an incomplete work. See, it looks good. It's acceptable in the culture to be, to be these people. But you start preaching Christ and suddenly that comes at a cost. These people were unwilling. They had become unwilling to carry that cost, to be a people who pick up their cross and follow after Jesus. Their expressions of love were actually really self-serving. Oh, we love the culture? Just enough to make sure we don't suffer. Who do you really love? We see this in friendships and relationships where we love one another but we won't confront one another because we love one another so much. 
wait a minute. How do we say we love one another if really the reason I won't confront someone in sin that's actually a good thing to do, I love myself so much that I'm afraid I'll lose that relationship. Their expressions of faith didn't lead them to be faithful witnesses. These works were incomplete. They didn't hold so fast to a faith that they weren't feeling pressure for being faithful. I often wonder, I I, I don't know what would really happen, but I often wonder if we really lived as faithful witnesses in this world, in this country, that there's a freedom of religion. I wonder if we really got serious about being faithful witnesses, if the church, if God's people would be quite so acceptable. I think there's a time we would have been. But I think the unacceptability of our positions would have come much sooner if the church had continued to be faithful witnesses and sought less to syncretize and sought less to be less offensive. So th- these people in Sardis, they, they, they are... They are much like the Pharisees that Jesus confronts in Matthew chapter 23 when he, when he confronts them on the weakness of their works, when he, when he pronounces woes and curses upon them. He, he mentions in 23.15, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You teach him to believe something, but you've just paved his way into eternal damnation. In, 2020, in 2323, he says, you tithe, mint, deal, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law of mercy and justice. Yeah, you do these good things, but you deny the more important, higher priorities. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Yeah, tithe on your mint, deal, and cumin. Keep doing that. But don't deny that mercy and justice are weightier. Give yourself to the pursuit of those things. In 23, 25, he says, you clean the outside of the cup. But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on to call them whitewashed tombs, a brood of serpents. They had works. Yeah, they had plenty of works. And they would have stood in front of him and said, look at all the works we've done. Look at all we've done. Look at all this religion. Look at all this righteousness before you. Aren't you glad that we've done these things for you? And he just said, I never knew you. Depart from me. And that's what's going to happen to these people in Sardis. Because he sees their works as incomplete. I think another complaint he has against them is that there's only a few names. And, and, and it might at first appear that this is a commendation. Oh man, there's a few people hanging on. And I think that's great for those few people, right? Like I, I think it's a for them, it's, it's honorable. I mean, if Jesus looks at your life and he says, you're living a worthy life, I mean, I would love that. Who wouldn't be honored by that? Who wouldn't feel enthralled and grateful to hear that, right? Like, who, wouldn't, who doesn't want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, into the rest of your master? Who doesn't want to hear that? And I do. But he's saying this to the church, and I think it's actually a complaint against the church. The church had such a good reputation. But they were actually ruled and run and predominantly 
people who were at best immature Christians. But at worst, they weren't even really true disciples. Now, a healthy church, now I, I've said this in some of our members' meetings, and I, and I continue to have this conversation around. I think it's something we have to hear. A healthy church is never going to be 100% spiritually mature. Until the day Jesus returns, there should always be a progression of maturity to immaturity. There should always be people who we are making disciples because part of spiritual health is the mature disciple reaching down to the immature disciple, to the not yet disciple, so that they can be made disciples and then begin to mature as disciples. That's a healthy church. And so, so maturity, 100% maturity, isn't what a church should pursue, right? We're not looking to be a church that simply just is, says, oh, 100% in, we're all in. That, that's great for a generation. But who are you making disciples? That's the next question. Who is the immature person that you're leading to, to trust in Christ? And, who, and, and I know he's the one that has to produce that fruit. He's the one that has to make that growth occur. I understand that. But in what ways are you engaging the culture around you to make disciples from them, drawing them in and among you so that they can see what life together in Christ is like, calling them to faith so that they can be matured? But this church is on the other end of that spectrum. They're not hitting the 80-20 rule where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. But you see this progression from a, from a church that was some were, being, were dealing with cultural compromise to, to a church where some were being seduced away to a church where only some are faithful. A very small percentage. This church that Jesus is talking about in Sardis is ruled and run by people who we aren't even certain are Christian. But there's some among you. There's still some members. There's still a way to fan that back into flame. So even here, even here, Jesus doesn't just condemn the church outright and turn around and walk away, but he patiently, mercifully tolerates the, the sinners among them to call those who are his to something serious. So what's that call? Jesus' call on the church in Sardis. And, and don't miss just how important this, this merciful tolerance is. Don't dismiss this. He's patient towards them. And I think there's part of us that would just, well, I'm done. I, I, but over and over, this, this need for patience. I, I think of 2 Timothy, and where, where Paul is writing to, the, to, to his son in the faith, and he is preparing him for ministry where Paul is gone and dead. And, and he's like, hey, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, because there's coming a time where people will accumulate teachers to tickle their ears. And I think we're there. In religious circles and in irreligious circles, there are people assembling a group of teachers to tickle their ears and make them feel good. He says, preach the word in season and out of season with complete patience. Not just condemning, not just throwing away, not just giving up, not just ignoring, not just walking away, but with complete patience, just like he has done for churches like this one in Sardis. That he is tolerant, not approving, not affirming, not condoning, 
but dealing with it so that he can bring to them a merciful call to repentance. To wake up first and be vigilant. Wake up. And the, and the language actually in this is, I don't know why they translate it uh, wake up when really the language lends itself better to be vigilant. Be consistent. Be committed. Be a people who, who pursue these things, who, who don't get lulled to sleep, who don't get lulled into complacency, who never quit pursuing the thing. Never quit being on guard. Wake up. Be vigilant. And in a city where vigilance was a problem, you can be certain that this church understood what he's getting at. The church lost its, or the city lost its prominence. It lost its position of power in the area. It lost its identity, its sense of being. In fact, there was a, there was one person I read from that pointed out, he said that, um, that the phrase, um, oh gosh, what was it? Overcoming, oh, taking, taking the Acropolis of Sardis had become a phrase in that culture of doing something that seemed impossible. Like they became a meme, for lack of a better way to say it. If you can, if you can take the Acropolis of Sardis, then that, what you're saying is I can do the impossible. And here's this city that was known once for its position and power being made fun of and being ridiculed because they had become complacent. And Jesus is saying to this church, don't let that be true of you. Don't make the mistake that others have made. Be vigilant. Wake up. Hear and heed his warning. Remember then what you received and heard. He's referring back to the gospel truths, the gospel message that had been proclaimed among them. And, and maybe they had heard it from, from the likes of Paul walking through the city or the, or the likes of, of people coming up from, from Pentecost that had heard the gospel preached by Peter or as the church is, is persecuted and, and it's scattered across Asia Minor. As Christians went, it says in Acts uh, 8, that they, everywhere they went, they were proclaiming Christ. Maybe, maybe it's through the, the preaching of Paul in the city of Ephesus that tells us in, in the book of Acts where, where the whole of Asia Minor heard the gospel through the, through the church at Ephesus. Maybe. Listen to that thing. Hear it. Remember what you heard. And repent. Don't just remember what you heard and do nothing about it. Remember what you heard. Hear it again. Hear it fresh. Bring it in and heed it. Do something about it. Don't sit there and act as if there's nothing to do. Don't sit there and act as if it's too late. Don't sit there and act as if your sin is beyond the reach of God's grace. Don't pretend that you are such a great sinner or that you are such a good Christian that you don't still need God's grace. Both of those things are equally dangerous. Hear and heed this warning. And then herald the gospel call to be, be faithful witnesses. This is a call in this letter. And, and I know you're like, well, where did you get that? I don't see the word herald at all. Well, if you skip down, actually, if you work your way backwards through the letters, this has been the message over and over. It's what he's been building to is that these people live in such a way that, that his gospel is made known in their word and works. But then you go down just a little bit to verse Five, and he says, the one who conquers will, will be clothed in white garments. I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. And what I think he's doing there is alluding to a teaching that he gave while he was on the earth. 
It's in the book of Luke where he calls people to pick up their cross, follow him. It, it, what, what good does it do a man if he gains his life in this world but gives up his life in the one to come? And then he says in Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and above the holy angels. If we are unwilling to be faithful witnesses in this world, it might demonstrate that we are more ashamed of Christ more unwilling to pick up our cross and follow him, more unwilling to be the people he's called us to than to confess his name. It might just be that we're ashamed of him. He expects of his people to live in such a way that our love isn't just a word we say, but it's in word and deed, according to 1 John 3, 16, that our love for one another is the way that people recognize we are his disciples. And what did he hold against Ephesus? That they had lost their love, right? So he's calling us to these people who faithfully bear witness by our love. In the church in Smyrna, they are enduring hardship. They are enduring suffering, and more is coming. Greater suffering is coming because they will not deny the truth of Christ. They will not join in worship of the pagan gods or the Roman emperor. They are going to pay the price, and he calls them to this, to this place to hold fast to that, to continue doing it. Don't give up an inch. In Pergamum, he highlights the fact that, hey, you saw somebody die. He was a faithful witness I think I've got that right. Yes, even deny my faith, even, even in the days of Antipas. Sorry, I'm suddenly questioning myself. To the church in Thyatira, he calls out their love, their faith, their service towards one another, their patient endurance. He doesn't use the term faithful witnesses, but well, that is a faithful witness who reflects and images and represents the, the glory of Christ to the world in which they live. And he can't say anything good about Sardis because so many of them, most of them, only a few of them, are demonstrating that they're faithful witnesses. And they're, only they are heralding this gospel call. We are to live it absolutely. We're, we're to hear it, we're to heed it, we're, and we're to herald it. We're to make it known. That's why he's left us here. That is the greatest mission that Christ has given his church in this time and this place. How can we say we worship God if we're unwilling to be a witness of his glory? How, how can we say we gather in this room in worship and yet we go home and we never mention his name to anyone? When his last words on the earth were go, make disciples. It's a big deal. What he didn't say was gather in your holy huddles and make sure you're comfortable with one another. Although that's a necessity, it's necessary. Please don't ever hear me diminishing the gathering of God's people. We are a gathering. But he didn't command us to, to gather in our holy huddles. He commanded us to go and make disciples. There's a day where mission is ending. You get that. Because tolerance isn't just limited in the truths it will deal with. Like it won't tolerate lies. It doesn't tolerate false gospels. It tolerates sinful people. It tolerates false prophets so that we can call them to repentance. 
But in his commitment to the church in Sardis, we find that his tolerance is also listed in length of time. There's a day coming where he will no longer tolerate sinners. He is going to come like a thief against you. I'm preaching in the choir, but that's the words he says to this church in Sardis. He's going to come like a thief. You will not know when it's coming. It will be by a surprise. Don't miss this mercy-filled call to a church who doesn't deserve it, who had actually given away its opportunity to hear it. And yet, through his prophet John, he sends this letter for this church to hear. You don't know when it's coming. It's going to be a surprise, but you will one day be treated as my enemy, not as one who I've extended a gospel call to. You will be condemned. And really, it's, it's, it's actually beautiful, this, this, this two-sided way in which his sword works, right? Like that's two-edged sword. In one sense, it's, it's removing his enemy. It's removing their power. It's warring against them. It's going to defeat them but it also protects his people. The one who has the Holy Spirit, who has the seven spirits, who has the stars in his hands, that one who's got the two-edged sword that comes from his mouth, that one says, there's three promises here to his people, to those who overcome, to those who conquer, you will be clothed in white clothed in righteousness. You will, you will be counted pure. You'll be counted worthy. It's shocking words when you think about it because he, he looks at these people, yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Whoa, 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 whoa. They are worthy? They've, they, they are counted. That they, 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 We look at our lives, we're like, how in the world? I'm not worthy. And in our circles, especially reformed-ish circles, we're always talking about sinners and sinful people and, and we're always focusing on our sin and not thinking about what God has made us. He has made you worthy in Christ. And he's calling his people worthy. These people who are now living this life and the same ones that then turn around and hear this call and heed this call and herald his call, those same ones are going to also be dressed in white. They also will be counted worthy. They will be called righteous. When you walk into the kingdom of God, you'll be wearing a white robe. And he'll say, come on in, you belong. It's way better than the alternative. You'll be certified for life. And I mean, to think about this, you're given a name that then is written in the book of life that is never going to be erased. You know, there's that joke about Peter being at the gates, and that's such a, oh gosh, that's such terrible theology. You know, St. Peter standing at any gates, right? It's terrible theology, but the imagery of St. Peter standing there at the gates with this book, you'll be able to walk up there and your name will be in it. Come on, put your name, put your name in the sentence. Seth Shelton's name will never be blotted out of it. I belong there. There's a reservation being held. Not because of what I've done. I, I, I know better than that. Not because of what I can do. I know better than that. But on the basis of what Christ has said, 
I have a certification. I have a security. It can never be removed. And then he says it. I'll confess you to my father. Standing in the holy gathering, angels surrounding him, the throne room that we're going to get a glimpse of in chapter 4, standing surrounded by the eternal assembly that's stood, that's, that's hung around the throne and praised our God and called him holy, holy, holy. In that gathering, Jesus will say your name. He will call your name. He, she belongs to me. They are ours. My blood has washed them clean. My work has paid their price. My perfection has been given to them. My righteousness is bestowed upon them. My holiness belongs to them. He will confess to his Father that you are his. this is the message that we're called to go into the world and herald. That those who reject him, he will come against like a thief. But those who conquer, who turn to him, who, who trust in him, who repent and move and, and turn away from the, the, the false gods and the lies and the, and the sins and turn in faith towards him, they will be clothed in righteousness certified for life and confessed to his father. And, and really, I want you to see this. I've, I've, I've tried to call it out at every chapter. Not only in the beginning of the letters does he reference back to chapter 1 where he shows that, that the, the revelation that he showed himself to John in a certain way is drawn out. That happens at the beginning of every letter. At the end of every letter, he points to the end of the book and he shows us this is going to happen Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. No one dressed in anything other than white will ever enter into his kingdom. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's this whole progression that happens in the book of Revelation. From the very beginning, from the very first vision to the very last, Jesus is ruling in truth and with grace. He is extending mercy in a fallen world, but his people can be certain that we will be with him forever. Let's pray.